Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Ron Hosko is a former assistant director of the FBI. He's now the president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. He joins us. Mr. Hosko, great to have you with us. And I should mention here, no one has seen this memo yet. As I said, the New York Times had an associate of Mr. Comey's read parts of it to them. Other news organizations have reported the existence of this memo. Help us understand what a director of the FBI would be chronicling in memos like these. Well, I think it would be largely limited to, you know, very significant meetings where the director had, uh, you know, immediate or personal involvement. Um, there are there were many of us, myself included, that kept a ledger book where you would go to significant meetings, jot notes to yourself, uh, understand what the taskings were that might have been directed towards you or that you were giving to others. Uh, you know, to organize your day, to organize follow-up meetings, and certainly to have a recall of, of significant events because people there are very, very busy. And and when these meetings start to uh, bump into each other, which they do every day, uh, it's easy to lose track. But in this case, uh, I think that the, the interaction, uh, as reported, was so momentous that I actually think the director would have been failing in his, his responsibilities had he not committed the, uh, the interaction to paper. Um, it, is, it is the standard practice of every FBI agent to typically take notes in any longer interview and to very quickly convert those notes to a formal written report that's uh, suitable for use in court. It's commonly known as a 302 uh, agents across this country every day are in court testifying on the basis of their 302s and their recollection. So for Jim Comey to perhaps produce a 302 because of what he thought was the intent or a memo, a separate memo, I don't think that is anything out of the ordinary other than the nature of the, the contact made it out of the ordinary. So you keep track of all of this, it sounds like, for, for two reasons. The first is uh, for, your, for your own benefit, to keep track of what's going on, what you've said, what's been said. Uh, the other is that, that this could be used uh, in, in a court uh, of law. How frequently does that happen, and how much credence uh, does the judicial system give uh, these 302s, these memos, these notes uh, from, from members of the FBI? Uh, a, a great deal of credence. It is the essential uh, tool that is produced, well, that and agent notes, which can tend to be uh, more cryptic, uh, have more gaps. You know, they're, they're intended to be just that, they're notes. So it may be just a collection of words. I, I kept notes very much that same way. My notes, because of uh, my, my background, were very difficult for others to read, sometimes difficult for me to read. Um, we were expected to be able to turn those over prior to a trial. And and, but typically, you were handed an FD 302 and, and asked on the stand, was this your 302 recording 
your recall of, of events around this interview, this activity. And you were going to be cross-examined on that 302. The, the reality is, though, part of that cross-examination would be, this isn't what the, my client said. This is what you said he said. Mm. And so, you know, credibility is still at stake. Um, more frequently than not, there's at least two agents on an FD-302 testifying to it. They both reviewed the contents. They both initialed the document. It's become part of the official FBI record. Um, here we'll, we'll have to wait to learn to see how Jim Comey treated this memo. Uh, I guess that's, that's the best description we have today. It could be that he held it in a safe in his office and told senior people involved with the Flynn investigation about it, and, you know, to essentially put a placeholder in an electronic case file, but made a decision not to share it more broadly with, like, by example, the agents working the investigation. Yep. Because, you, you know, you have these concentric circles that get larger and larger, and if somebody mistakenly tells their wife and the wife tells a cousin and all of a sudden mm. it's in the wild. So I, I would expect that he would keep this very, very close hold. Uh, important perspective here from uh, from Ron Hosko, former assistant director of the FBI, joining us here on uh, Bloomberg Surveillance. Great to hear uh, this kind of detail, Tom. Absolutely. Uh, good morning, everyone. David Gurren, Tom Keane with uh, Agent Hosko. Ron, I have out on Twitter during all this uproar put out people that are on the honor roll at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, ending with Samuel S. Hicks, 2008, who gave his life in the line of duty. You have one of the FBI's Shield of Bravery Awards for your action. Enlighten our audience on how the agents feel at this moment and what kind of FBI director would the agents want. This is Mr. Hosko's three decades of experience with the FBI. What do they want? Well, first, they want, uh, they want somebody who I think has a, a, a very uh, robust knowledge of both DOJ and the FBI. Uh, this is, you know, the, the, to get a running start for this job, to have that sort of prior experience, to have been in federal court practice, prosecutions, uh, have, have walked the halls of DOJ or been a U.S. attorney, uh, for years, um, you know, that is a really a, a long-term public servant, not a politician. Uh, you know, and I've said this, and I don't mean this in any way to disparage some of the names we've heard, but if you have a D or an R behind your name, I think, you know, to, to me and I think to a lot of the agents there, you'd want to cross that person off the list. They want somebody who will gain a, a very strong consensus, yeah. like Jim Comey did when he came in, that is embraced by the public as the person to sort it out and to lead this agency. Um, and, you know, we're talking about an agency of over 30,000 people with a, with a daunting task. If you just look no further than the cyber attacks, right. uh, ISIS, <clears throat> terror, and all the white-collar crime and, and counterintelligence work, you need somebody smart, motivated, who wants the job in this environment. That alone may be right. you know, an uphill climb. The, the phrase is the FBI always gets its man, and I'm old enough, folks, to remember the absolute collapse after J. Edgar uh, Hoover. What does the American public most get wrong about the line agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation? Well, I think there, there is still, uh, even though Director Comey and others have, have taken these steps to put things in the public domain, whether it's on the FBI's website where 
perhaps you looked at, you know, there's a lot of data about the FBI, its history. You could find a lot online now. But I think there is still this mystery about who these men and women are that are wearing those badges. And, you know, the, the reality is they're the soccer mom or dad at night. Uh, you know, they're coaching a team. They're, you know, out with the Boy Scouts. Uh, they are they are our neighbors and our friends, and they're in our churches and our uh, houses of worship. Um, you know, if you cut them, they will bleed too. But you know, they do have a, a level of training that I think many of us, myself included, think make them a cut above. They uh, they do believe in their motto: fidelity, bravery, integrity. Um, they hold that very dear, and they're they're not part of a thin blue line in the pejorative sense mm. that protects its own despite. Uh, corruption. The FBI does, a, I think, yeah. a very effective job at policing their own, and and they believe in the rule right. of law and, and our institutions of government. Yeah. They swear yeah. an allegiance to our Constitution, period. Right. Ron, we're out of time. We need to get you back. Yeah, Thank you so much for you. being with us. Mr. Hosko with LELDF and, of course, a former agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. We have now for us uh, A Gentle Two Blocks with Henry Kaufman. His new book is Must Read for Global Wall Street. It is beautifully brief, but peopled by people. I'm having so much fun putting out a, a, a Twitter feed, Dr. Kaufman, on your book of photos from another time and place, including you impossibly young at Salomon Brothers as well. When you were at Salomon Brothers, how did you judge risk versus how we judged risk in June of 2007? Well, when I was at Solomon Brothers, uh, we judged risk from an analytical viewpoint. One of our great publications was the supply and demand for credit in the financial markets, and where we lined up the key demanders of credit and lined up all the suppliers, including the role of the Federal Reserve. And that gave you not only a good anatomy of what was going on in the financial markets, but it also gave you some hints as to what the direction of interest rates would be and where the pressures would be on what kind of markets. Would, it, would they initially come on the mortgage side? What would be the risks in the government area? Right. Uh, and so on. It was a different <clears throat> environment and in a different setting. And less leveraged as well. How do you respond to 10 years of work to deleverage the game? Have we done that? Have we succeeded? Uh, have we? Th no, we have not fully dis uh, succeeded in, in deleveraging. If you go back uh, a, c a couple of decades, not just 10 years, uh, you find that the uh, position of business corporations is far weaker today uh, in terms of the credit structure than business corporations were 10, 20 years ago. You also find, as compared to 10, 20 years ago, uh, that the household sector, while it has improved its financial situation, is still quite a bit leveraged, at least from a cyclical perspective. So in a sense, what I'm saying to you, Tom, is that the firing power of the private sector to continue to create credit in the years ahead is not the same as it was in the periods gone by. You dedicate this book to uh, Sidney Homer, the bard of the bond market, the mm -hmm. former head of bond research at Salman Brothers, hired you. What did you learn from him? Well, I've, I'll give you an anecdote. When I came in, 
to the firm about three weeks in, Sidney Homer came into my office and Sidney said, I have here the galleys of the book that I have written called A History of Interest Rates. And I said, what do you want me to do with these galleys? And he said, I want you to give one to your secretary and one for you. And I'd like you to read out loud the entire text and everything to your secretary. And I said, why do you want me to do that? He said, well, you will soon find out how many errors I've made and what the sentence structure feels like. So I read out loud to my secretary in the early days 575 pages of the history of interest rates and about uh, must be a hundred tables of statistical information on interest rates from 2000 BC to at that time the present time. <laughs> that is, an, ama- that is an amazing, an amazing story. We'll come back, but let me ask you about just the, the relationship between a U.S. president uh, and a Fed chair. You can you can talk about these two in particular, but just generally, what's that relationship supposed to be like, to to your view? Well, uh, that at one time was a little bit more confrontational in mm. a public sense than it is today. It's a little bit more behind the scene, although I'm not sure yet what it will yeah. be with President Trump. Uh, just to uh, to illustrate, in the early days of the 1950s, when Bill Martin was chairman, uh, and the U.S. government moved to financing in the public sector uninhibited. Well, the president didn't like that at the time because the president was still used to the fixed financing that was going on uh, during World War II. So at one time, Bill Martin ran into the the president Truman in the the Waldorf. And the president went up to Bill Martin and said, you are a traitor. Okay. Well, we'll come back. Henry Kaufman. I'm not impressed that Sidney Homer made him read out loud his classic book on bonds, because as we all know here, Taylor Riggs of Team Surveillance is reading out loud the entire CFA curricula as we speak. We continue with Dr. Kaufman. This is Bloomberg. Can't say enough about this new effort. It is airplane ready. It is summer weekend ready. Henry Kaufman, tectonic shifts in financial markets from age 22 to 92. It is about people, a look back and a look forward in our financial history. Dr. Kaufman, how are we doing? I mean, Jamie Dimon, Jamie Dimon, Jamie Dimon, Jamie Dimon. How's American banking doing away from Fortress Diamond? Well, American banking has recovered, as you know, since uh, 2009. Uh, the k- structure of the capital <laughs> position has improved uh, somewhat. But at the same time, the dilemma is the structure of the activities are, have not changed much. And we still have institutions that are too big to fail, and the government doesn't fully know how to handle that situation. This is going to be an ongoing problem. And so, therefore, The Federal Reserve, the government, on an ongoing basis will be involved much more so in the management of our financial system than in earlier periods. How do you look – what's the Kaufman prism of European banking? I mean, there was Ackerman and Jane at Deutsche Bank and the others. We remember the BNP Paribas sock chain blow up uh, a little bit after August of 07. Can Europe compete with our banks or do we have the commanding heights now of the financial apparatus? Well, for the time being, Europe cannot compete with our banks. Uh, uh, they still are undercapitalized. They still haven't demonstrated 
a management strength sufficient to oversee its various activities. And the European banks, to a large extent, are convalescing. Uh, I think our banks are out of that stage at the present time. Uh, that makes a, a big difference. But the overall structure of banking is still emerging and is still under the tight surveillance of central banks and governments. And for the time being, that's going to continue. There was a moment uh, in an interview that Bloomberg did uh, with President Trump about a week and a half mm. ago. Two of our colleagues sat down with him and asked him if he'd uh, think about revisiting breaking up the, the big banks. And he said it's something that he, in fact, is thinking about. He's talked about a 21st century Glass-Steagall. Is that something that you would, would welcome, a return to that standard? I certainly would. And I've argued for the retention of Glass-Steagall 30 years ago, and it didn't occur at the time. Uh, it's interesting to note that when Glass-Steagall was removed, it was agreed upon by both Democratic parties and the Republican parties. And the key members of it that drove this, uh, to say the head of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, was a Republican. And, of course, Mr. Rubin was Secretary of the Treasury, was, was a Democrat. So it was a joint decision without fully understanding what the consequences would be of this tremendous concentration in financial assets, which would occur as a result of the breakup of the Glass-Steagall. And it empowered the central bank to a higher level uh, than it had been prior to that event. Uh, we've spent years now following rule writing. Uh, in Washington, thousands of, of pages of legislation, more thousands of pages of rules, a lot of ink spilled. We have a president talking about scaling back those regulations. When you look at the regulatory landscape in Washington, D.C., all of this stuff now is so ingrained uh, into these bureaus and agencies. How difficult is it to, to move beyond the kind of regulation we have in place now? I, I think in order to move beyond this overlay of regulations and regulation is to, more, is to simplify the underlying institutions. Uh, if we had financial institutions that focused on insurance, others on managing money, others on consumer lending, the overall regulatory process would be much okay. simpler. That's an important statement, Dr. Kaufman. We would get a better regulatory process. I think we can all agree on that. But within efficiency, do we get better profit, better return on equity, if we can't take advantage of synergies. I hate that word, but that's how you guys invented this, right? Well, it's, <laughs> it's your fault, right? Uh, I, I, I really believe that when you have these, these overlays of conglomerates, yeah. they're difficult to manage. Because they, each platform has their own character of risk. That's right. Insurance is radically different then Mr. Goodfriend running a bond desk. Yeah. That, that, that is correct. But nevertheless, you're in this conglomerate organization, and the CEO is supposed to be able to make judgments over this diversity of risk-taking, which becomes very complex. How would Mr. Diamond respond to that? He's living it today. Well, he would say we've done it successfully. Uh, but he has been a survivor. He would not have been a survivor if there had been more failures. Is he a different banker because he had a tour of duty in the Midwest? 
He doesn't have the arrogance of the East Coast because he was sent out there and, you know, <laughs> excuse me, Chicago, you're going to kill me for this. But banking Siberia, the land. There's that arrogance of the East Illinois. Coast right here. There right it is here. right there. John Tucker, my days are numbered, right? Well, they just <laughs> turned is, you is, off is, in the witness. Good morning, but, Chicago. But, but, is know, Jamie Dimon different? Well, uh, you mentioned Chicago. Uh, name me an independent bank that's left in Chicago. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's painful. Northern Trust, of course, but that's not a fully a, a, a commercial banking operation. What uh, was what was Continental Illinois like? What was the morning like? Folks, for those of you younger like John Tucker, <laughs> Continental Illinois was a different crisis. We cleared it quickly. Why could we clear Continental Illinois, but we couldn't clear all this other modern stuff? Well, because after Continental Illinois the market became much more complex. Uh, we invented more financial instruments, more tradable obligations of all sorts. And as a consequence, the activities were so diverse that the management requirement was so high. And yeah. we had somebody from Citicorp say, as long as the music plays, we're going to have to be on the dance floor. Uh -huh. And that was Chuck Prince. Yeah. which changed the management style and said, we are not going to balance our entrepreneurial drive with our fiduciary responsibility, mm -hmm. which really meant the entrepreneurial drive was overriding. You've mentioned uh, central banks a couple of times here. Bef before we let you go, let me ask you about the, the direction you think this Fed is going in. We hear so much about a new uh, rules-based approach. Uh, certainly members of the advisory team uh, giving the president guidance have, have hoped for that. Um, there is an opportunity here to change a lot of personnel within the Fed, perhaps scale back some of its regulatory responsibilities. What does the Fed look like to you a year out, four years out by the end of the, the president's term? Well, uh, President Trump has the opportunity, as you know, to change the composition of the Federal Reserve dramatically uh, without any legal changes by the new people that are coming on the board and the chairperson mm. that's coming on the board. Uh, that is the big debate. Now, I don't know what the president will, will, will decide, but recognizing that he certainly favors the continuation of somewhat low interest rates because he was a borrower himself uh, and, and so on. So the key question is, will he go with another economist as the chair? Mm -hmm. Because the economists have dominated the chairmanship of the Fed with the exception of, uh, of of two governors, uh, so so to speak. Yeah. Or, or will he go to a somebody who ran a bank, uh, to somebody <clears throat> from the business mm -hmm. community, as such? Uh, my suspicion is he may try to find a banker. Mm -hmm. Henry Kaufman, thank you so much. What are you doing October twentieth, two thousand seventeen? Well, who, who October, are you going to have lunch with? Uh, on October twentieth, two thousand seventeen, I hope to have lunch with my wife. <laughs> And maybe Paul Volcker, who will have celebrated his 90th birthday right. the, 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 uh, the month before. Yeah. Just a few my, weeks my, I'm going to editorialize here. And all I can say is I just hope President Trump has you into the Oval Office, as he did with that old guy, Dr. Kissinger, the other day. <laughs> Henry Kaufman. We look forward to the tapes. Yeah. And for those of, you, those of you, I just got an email from Chicago, which I believe we can file John Tucker under hate mail. Yeah. David Harrow, I'm sorry. I yes. didn't mean to say that. For all of you on Sirius XM Channel 119 in <laughs> Chicago, I love you. I love the Blackhawks. I love I love Taze. And they're the shaking Cubs their heads like I am right now. I, I'm gonna, they're going to drown me in the <laughs> Chicago River. Tectonic shifts in financial markets. Must read for Global Wall Street from Dr. Kaufman. Stay with us worldwide. This is Bloomberg.
brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. Now joining us uh, for an extended conversation, we'll go a bit here and then longer in a moment, Stephen Ratner with Willett Advisors. Uh, we should disclose that he uh, runs an investment arm, as it's called, for uh, Michael Bloomberg, the principal owner of Bloomberg Television and Radio as well. Steve, I've seen you all over the media recently. What is the media getting wrong in the uproar over what's going on in Washington is you go interview to interview and you see the the pundocracy to, to, I can't find the right word <laughs> I like that neologism it's out good. there yeah. what 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 do you see where you go as a grizzled real folks let me make this clear Mr. Ratner's a real journalist from another time and place what are we getting wrong in the 24-7 cable uproar I think one thing that struck me actually this morning when I was watching one of the one of the cable shows, and, and there was a very smart lawyer, Jonathan Turley, who's mm. uh, very experienced yes. in terms of the uh, the legalities around the presidency. I think we may be a little bit overreacting on the legal side, and I'm not here to defend Donald Trump in any way, shape, or form. I think much of what he's done is appalling. That'd be news if but, you were. It would be news. <laughs> but but well, this is a little a nugget of news. Yeah. I do I do think we are short of. The notion of impeachment. I think all the talk about it, about impeachment is probably unwarranted rel relative to what at least we know at this moment that he did or seems to have done. And so what we really have is a presidency in crisis rather than necessarily an impeachment tribunal about to be convened. How caught up in all of that are you, Tom and I, exhausted by you know, a news story hitting every day at 5 p.m.? As a person, as an investor, how do you how do you process all that's happening out of Washington? How do you process that crisis? Well, it's funny you mention it because I'm I we're all obsessed with this, yeah. and I happened to turn on one another cable show yesterday at five o'clock. Like which the I, president, which I, <laughs> I, I'm, uh, but I don't I don't tubo it and then play it for my friends. Yeah. But in any event, I turned one on at five o'clock yesterday, and literally in the middle of it of talking to the guests about the last issue, suddenly the new issue right. uh, erupted, and he had and and the host had a completely changed direction. So it is captivating. You know, I was mm. I am old enough as. Uh, as Tom is, uh, you're not, David, uh, to to remember the, the whole Watergate thing mm. when we didn't have TiVo and cable news, but we had yeah. uh, around-the-clock live news, and we were all glued to our television sets. You, you couldn't avoid it. It was it yeah. was, uh, it was an incredible drama and the future of the country. I do want to say, David, we are acutely aware of doing economics, finance, investment in the markets around all that's going on yeah. in Washington. We're already thinking about Jobs Day early June, where, David, we're going to give it a real retail perspective. Okay. 
as well. Good. So let's go back to politics. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Ratner with us here. He'll be heading to Washington uh, tomorrow to the Longworth uh, House Office Building, testifying before the House Ways and Means Committee, the title of the hearing, hearing on how tax reform will grow our economy uh, and create uh, jobs. What are you going to say to uh, to Chairman Brady in the lot tomorrow uh, down in D.C.? I'm going to say that as we think about tax reform or a tax bill, we should think about a number of important principles. One is certainly fairness to all Americans. One is thinking about the deficit and the impact on the debt. One is thinking about our competitive position internationally and what we need to do there. And then, of course, most importantly, how we're going to grow our economy. I imagine you're going to do some um, some explaining about this whole growth issue. We saw the statement of principles from the, the White House uh, indicating the cycle that tax reform would get growth going and that would pay for the cost of the tax cuts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, do you think that the Republicans in the House are simpatico with that, that they're wedded to the idea they're advanced to by the White House? I, I, think, I think you've seen a number of prominent Republicans talk about the importance of the tax bill being deficit neutral. Yeah. Mitch McConnell, I think, most recently. What we don't know is what they mean by deficit neutral and how much credit they're going to give for the so-called dynamic scoring or the circle, the virtuous circle that you described or however you want to think about it. Uh, Stephen Mnuchin set out at the Milken Conference, where I also was, that uh, 1% increase in GDP growth from 2 to 3 would create about $2 trillion of revenue over 10 years. One, of course, I have no idea that we can make 3%, but even if we did, this is a $5.5 trillion tax bill that the president's put forward. So there's no amount of growth that any reasonable person can project that will address the deficit that's created by this uh, proposal. So I think you're going to see a much more modest tax if, bill when the dust settles. You did a little bit of czar work in Detroit. If we announced this week that your civic czar or social studies czar for all of America, and, and certainly President Trump maybe needs a few civics uh, lessons, can we do our civics and social studies and do legislation at the same time? No, I, I think uh, I'd be interested to see what I hear and feel when I'm down there tomorrow. But certainly from up here and having conversations and watching what's going on there, uh, you know, Congress is a little bit like, I don't know, a five-year-old. They can only do one thing at a time well. And right now, right, and rightly right. so, they are completely preoccupied with uh, the oh. crisis in the White House. I mean, I go back to Charles Rangel at Houseways and Means, but you could go back to Bill Archer or Wilbur Mills uh, ages ago. How is Kevin Brady a different Houseways and Means chief? than the names you and I grew up with? I don't, I don't really know the answer to that. We'll find out as this tax bill winds its way through. We haven't had a significant tax bill in a good while, and he hasn't been chairman for very long. So we'll see. But I wait, would say wait, that wait in, a minute. In a good while? 40 years, is it? Or 30, uh, 30 years? 30, 30, 30 years. 30. Yeah. Well, we've had other tax bills, but not a major overhaul. But I, th I think what you probably can say is that the power of the chairman of Ways and Means is much diminished from the people that you mentioned, that, that congressmen no longer follow their leadership wherever they may go. There's much more independent thinking, and there's a lot, a lot more corralling you need to do of the horses to get uh, the troop underway. Let's, uh, let's dig into semantics a little bit here. We had, a, we had a conversation about comprehensive tax reform. Now it seems more people are talking about tax cuts. Help us with the distinction there. Are you seeing some erosion in the uh, optimism for comprehensiveness uh, in Washington? I think the size, as I said, for reasons of the deficit, if nothing else, yeah. I think the size of this is going to be dramatically smaller than anything the president's talking about. I think, uh, I think to Tom's point, we have not had major tax reform in 30 years. We've had some tax increases. We've had some tax cuts. And that's cuts. with an infinite time horizon. Reform meaning 
not just a cut that would last 10 years, but, but longer still? Well, that's a different question of whether you have a permanent, but yes, ideally permanent. But what I'm really talking about more is that in the last 30 years, many, uh, in, for both individuals and companies, ways of avoiding taxes, not evading, but avoiding taxes yeah. have crept into the tax code. And it's, it's like a garden. Mm. You know, if you don't weed it, if you don't put <clears throat> seeds down, if you don't water it, it becomes a mess. And that's really where yeah. the tax code is. And so the hope would be that you get, and I think the president is actually on the right track in some elements of his proposal. You clean up the deductions for individuals. You get them down to a couple that you, you need to have, whether it's uh, charitable or <clears throat> mortgage interest or whatever. And then you use that money to lower rates. That's a principle I think that everybody yeah. can agree on. 30 seconds. Can I ask the one investment question of the week? <laughs> What's the enthusiasm to acquire equity shares here? Do you have an enthusiasm you know, it's, it's, of it the is, market? It is. Uh, I get asked that question many times a day. Why is the market doing so well? No, I said, do you want to buy now? Do I want to buy now? No. I mean, I, I, we think we, we, we own equities. We're long-term investors. We're not good at market timing. We think it's a very hard game. But but by every measure, equities are very, very fully priced before okay. you even consider what's going on in the White House. Steve Ratner, look forward to seeing you at the Trump Hotel bar tomorrow. Yeah. Steve Ratner, will it? <laughs> I'll advisors. be there. He'll $20 be beers, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he'll be uh, testifying, of course, to House Ways and Means. David, I want you to bring in our next guest because I introduced her a week ago in London. We've yeah. just seen way too much of you. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. There we go. Helena Kennedy joins us now. Baroness Kennedy of the show. As principal at Mansfield College in Oxford. We've been checking in with her here over the last year or so, several times. It's great to see you once again here uh, in New York. Get us up to speed on, on Brexit from your uh, perspective. I know you care a lot about uh, jurisprudence and, and what all of this means for uh, the European court's jurisdiction uh, in the UK. What's the latest, uh, as, as you see it? Well, I mean, I, the thing is that I, uh, of course, I'm in the House of Lords and I am on the European Union Select Committee and I chair the bit on justice. So we've been taking evidence and doing reports for, for the general public and for parliamentarians about the impact of Brexit on law. And, of course, one of the great promises was that this would take us away from that awful European Court of Justice yeah. and um, reclaim all our uh, law back into Britain. But actually, it's suddenly becoming clear to people that an awful lot of this law is reciprocal and actually, it does quite good stuff for us in that, um, you know, particularly around trading, that you can get um, a very quick enforcement of judgments against people who owe you money in other parts of Europe because they haven't paid their bills when you've done trading with them. Um, or if a company goes bust, that you can make sure that you get your bit of the of, 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 of the deal and all of that sort of thing. So the, 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 the law has actually been very beneficial mm. um, to many people. You know, we know that big corporates can always get their lawyering sorted for them with very expensive lawyers, but small businesses are, are impacted by this stuff. And also people who are married to people from other bits of Europe, you know, over access to children and over um, maintenance for children and all sorts of stuff. Um, standards of goods, you know, um, um, you know lots of things around... Um, um, you know, consumer rights and environmental rights have come out of Europe and a collaboration. And have also, British lawyers have played a big part mm. in that because, on the whole, British lawyers are pretty pretty good at law, at least like they like to think they are. And uh, and so it's not all come at us. We've actually played a very large part in creating this law. So um, it's going to be a big deal, I tell you. It's going to take us probably a decade to get this all sorted out. Where do you where do you fall on this issue of transparency about the negotiations? Uh, the, the prime minister would like to have many of these negotiations behind closed doors. The EU says it wants to do them with uh, with greater transparency. Are there benefits to doing it in the other way, in in, in not having all of the dirty laundry uh, aired? 
It's it's very British. We're we're um we're not big on dirty laundry. And we like we like we like things behind closed doors. It's always been a much is the British yes. failing is to be very secret. Um, but the, but the reality is that this stuff gets leaked nowadays anyway, yeah. and we're not going to be able to keep this all closed down. Um, and the idea that we would keep our our hand close to our chests, um, and that's how you negotiate, isn't working yeah. out because as we've seen, because people keep leaking mm. from the other side, from other bits of Europe. In America, whatever anybody's politics right now, we're having lots of civics and what we call social studies lessons. Give us a civics lesson. What is Lord's place Good question, in yeah. this debate? Where do you fit in? Do you wear the? You don't wear the white hair, right? Well, I you do in court. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a barrister, so it's you wear the white hair in court. Yeah. I wear yeah. I wear a horsehair wig in court. Yeah. But in the House of Lords, we actually don't actually dress up for anything other than ceremonial right. stuff. But the, the House of Lords actually um, plays a very kind of good break on the system. The idea is that the House of Lords is supposed to take the long view rather than the having the the pressure of being an elected politician. And so it's supposed to be that it guards our unwritten constitution, that it kind of deals with values and principles rather than and the exigencies of the moment and has at times put brakes on some of the things that governments have wanted to do of whatever political complexion. So, um, you know, for example, when there were attempts to erode trial by jury or um, the civil liberties principles that have been at the basis of our rule of law, um, when governments have tried to do that, the House of Lords have said, hold on a minute, you know, you're actually tearing up the page of something rather important to what makes our system work. And that's a good thing. Um, And I think... um, um, I, you know, that, that, that's been the role of the House of Lords. Um, obviously, there's always been the complaint that it's not, they're not democratically elected and, and I wasn't elected either. But um, you do get a really widespread of expertise as a result. So there are pros and cons. Um, but, but there's no doubt that if uh, in this election um, the Conservative Party gets the predicted huge majority um, that uh, they, they're, they're hoping for, that that does mean that what will be said to us in the House of Lords is you have no right to uh, try to put a break on anything because you are not democratically elected. You can advise, you can you know, you can do all of that mm-hmm. stuff, but you cannot put a break on it. You see, all we can do is put a break on something for a year um, and that's in extreme circumstances. But we can't block legislation in the way that your Senate, Senate can. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think that we that's will be a, yeah. constantly told mind your P's and Q's, remember who you are, you're right. not elected and we are and we've got a huge mandate and we're therefore uh, free to do what we like. That's not not good for democracy, but there we are. David Gurr and Tom Keane together reunited uh, in our New York studios. We have the honour of Helena Kennedy with us. Baroness Kennedy is in the House of Lords and provides uh, perspective for the United Kingdom on legal and also on literature. She is the force behind the most controversial cocktail conversation (laughs) in the United Kingdom, which is books. Uh, 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 Baroness, I I learned this on my modest book tour, which I was fortunate. Thank you, Bloomberg. It was global. (laughs) But there's, there's New York and there's Asia, and then London is totally different. Boy, you people take your books seriously. We I do. was flabbergasted. It's is it a throwback where you never got to two thousand, well, or is it something new <laughs> about the United Kingdom well, I, and books? 
There is, yes, well, we do love books. I mean, and we have more book festivals than any other country, per, you know, per capita. Um, we really do. Um, we, yes, we still love our books, and I suppose we, we love the, the fact that we, you know, of our language and the English language and the, the great writers that have been produced in the language. And I have the great um, privilege of being the chair of the board of the Man Booker Prize. And, and people often say to me, I mean, you know, why does it matter? Why do prizes like this matter? Mm. And it's really about the celebration of literature and and while we sit in studios like this and we talk about the state of our economies and we talk about politics mm-hmm. and we talk about you know the conflicts around the world one of the ways in which we understand the human condition best is is through books and through literature and books such as you write too tom you know yeah. books are books are books <clears throat> are still a vital part of our of are knowing and understanding the world. We have the National Book Award here, the Pulitzer yeah. Prize here, big big prizes. But what I like about the, the Man Booker Prizes is that you have the, the long list and the short list. It becomes something that people participate in leading up to the award of the prize. Barber's, uh, Lionel Barber's done a little bit of that's that true. with his FT w- With the FT as well. As well. Yeah. Yeah. But that offers something different. And yes. people get involved. I mean, it becomes well, a, a pursuit that a lot of people can be a part of. People, yes. And one of the things about it is that it started off that it was, you know, a prize for um, basically the, the Commonwealth, you know, the UK, the Commonwealth and uh, and Ireland. And and then, of course, it's now become a sort of worldwide uh, Americans prize. are eligible now. El- Americans now have <laughs> got in. I mean, recognising the fact that it's basically about the English language and those who write in the English language yeah. from wherever in the world. And it also does a prize, which is a really a translation prize yeah. to, for, to introduce us to the writings of people in in other languages, um, but the best of translations. So the prize is shared between both. So we have two prizes, and I think that they are now really very important in our world about about basically understanding each other, but also it's right. just the joy of good writing. I mean, just just some of the history and controversy. Do, do you get hate mail? Do you get death threats <laughs> if you're running man book? Can, can I tell you? I don't, but um, I do know that some of our uh, judges happily I don't. Do the, you don't the do the judging. I don't okay. do the 160 yeah. books. No, we we, cho- we choose great judges, and we also have the great privilege of having Man, uh, a company that's familiar to all of you, um, as our as our partner in this, um, who yeah. help with supporting it financially. And one of the things about it is that um, you know, it is controversial. People get very cross about books and yeah. the things that they love and feel passionate about. And when they feel that in some ways a book that they've loved has not been included, people get yeah. pretty enraged. And so the judges do get some pretty shirty uh, right. uh, emails, I have to <laughs> yeah. tell you. I mean, Not AS, friendly. A.S. Byatt with Possession, that was a no-brainer. But I love 1980. Anthony Burgess and William Golding, and they had tantrums about who would show up or that. It, <laughs> it can be excruciating, can it? Yes, and, and it is true that while we think of um, actors and and, uh, and opera singers as being the divas, writers can be pretty pretty tricky yeah. too, you know. They don't always, they want to have a pro- appropriate deference to their, to their, to their status. Um, not all of them, of course. Yeah. What does the, the the prize mean to authors themselves? I think of Zadie Smith, who's now living here uh, in New York, which we're yeah. listed, of course. I mean, this this is a it is something that can really accelerate or elevate one's oh, career. There's no doubt it's a game changer for for many writers. Um, winning the the Booker Prize, um, really really get, getting the this this you know um, changes 
the, the reach of, the, of, of your readership. And so you move from um, reaching, I mean, sometimes just a few thousand uh, readers to actually, at times, you know, topping a million. I mean, you can really, really reach a much wider audience and so it can yeah. make a writer. So the Man Booker Prize really does is a, is a game changer. Where do you stand on our new short attention span? <laughs> Henry Kaufman came in, 89 years old today, with a lovely 161-page effort. I'm reading nostalgically a book from 30 years ago. It doesn't matter what it is right now. It's 600 pages long. Is there a force in the literature industry to keep books shorter? Well, because the, we, we've just lost our ability to read a long book? Well, there's, well there, it's very interesting because, um, I mean, increasingly we've seen smaller books, shorter books winning. Ian McEwan is writing these sort of yes. very concise novels. Um, but part of the business of the, the huge fat book is that, of course, put, put people in front of a computer and they run away with themselves. And we also tend to see fewer fewer editors um, doing the job of getting things down to a reasonable size and guiding yeah. authors. And so, and sometimes the authors become so grand that they won't be told. So, uh, <laughs> so there's that bit too. But, um, but by and large, I think that there is a, a mm -hmm. sense in which, yes, people are losing their attention span and people yeah. see a fat book and they don't want to buy it. In the time we've got left with you, we saw Prince Philip uh, step aside from active services uh, here a few uh, weeks ago. How prepared is the family, the Windsor family, for the next stage of their royalty. What's the pulse of, I don't care what I think or what David thinks, what's the pulse of the nation for this generational shift? But I, I think there's no doubt that, that tradition will win out. Um, if um, um, and when, when the Queen um, uh, 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 has, happens to all of us. I think yeah. it happens to all yeah. of us. And when the Queen dies, um, I have absolutely no doubt that the Prince of Wales will will become the King, and and then will be the King for for his the rest of his mm -hmm. lifespan, which is going to be much limited by comparison to hers. Mm -hmm. And then you will have um, William. I think that the, the 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 weddedness to monarchy is so embedded in in British tradition yeah. that it's here to stay. And it does actually. I'm afraid that um, and I, and I, this is there's nothing meant <laughs> detrimental in this. I think that people do think there's something, the continuity of that, that they're not really political, that they hold themselves at, at a distance from, from politics. And, and they do the ceremonial and the grand occasions and the ambassadorial role and all of right. that. Uh, I think people kind of like that as they look around the world and they think, God, um, who would we have as a president? <laughs> and, um, and I'm afraid that in Britain, we would, you know, when names are put forward as to who one might have as a president, it's not always awe-inspiring. No. So I think that it, we're yeah. better to stick just with the Windsor. You know, it could be any family, but let's stick with the Windsor. No, there's, a classic, there's a classic scene in the uh, John Adams movie where Mr. Adams backs out of the room with the king. And <laughs> it's a little bit of a divide. Yeah. On that note, we'll leave it with uh, Helena Kennedy Baroness uh, this morning. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.